preaching the glad tidings of the good things sent from God to us. Let me state that the ends of the earth, that was a, um, a Greek and a Roman idiom for the extremities of the oikumene. In other words, they traveled the entire Greco-Roman oikumene, or world, as Luke put it, when he said that Caesar taxed the whole world, that meant the whole Roman world. They departed to the ends of the earth, preaching the glad tidings of the good things sent from God to us, and proclaiming the peace of heaven to men who indeed do all equally individually possess the gospel of God, meaning all the men in the Roman world. Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the, the ecclesia, or the assembly. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Now, while I think that parts of all of these Christian writers are suspect, we see that the... Um, and that's in relation to some of the Catholic passages or passages which seem to support the Roman Catholic Church, which the Scripture certainly does not support. We see that Irenaeus believed that Peter related his gospel to Mark. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. From Irenaeus against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 5, wherefore also Mark, the interpreter and follower of Peter, does thus commence his gospel narrative, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's how Mark opens. From the fragments of Papias, Papias was a very early Christian writer. Most of his work was lost. A lot of it was preserved. A lot of passages were preserved in other writers. Here it comes from Eusebius's ecclesiastical history. And the presbyter, meaning Papias, said this, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ and I shall discuss this statement here later. For he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him, but afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Wherefore, Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things, as he remembered them, for of one thing, he took a special care not to omit anything he had heard and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. So we see Papias lived from approximately 70 A.D. until approximately 155 A.D., according to the earliest writers, and that's how Eusebius quoted him. From the fragments, fragments of Clemens Alexandrinus, Clement of Alexandria. This was actually also a fragment. Most of Clement's original work is also lost. However, this was quoted in Cassiodorus, and so it's been preserved for us. But the God of all grace, he says, of all grace, he says, because he is good and the giver of all good things, Marcus, my son, salutes you. Mark, the follower of Peter, 
While Peter publicly preached the gospel at Rome before some of Caesar's equites and adduced many testimonies to Christ in order that thereby they might be able to commit to memory what was spoken of and what was spoken by Peter, wrote entirely what is called the gospel according to Mark. So that's the third ancient witness that Mark had penned Peter's testimony in his gospel. And we have one more fragment of Clement of Alexandria, or, or I'm sorry, I think I actually may have two more. This is from, also preserved in Eusebius, and it's in his Ecclesiastical History, Book 2, Chapter 15. So then, through the visit of the divine word to them, the power of Simon was extinguished and immediately was destroyed along with the man himself, and such a ray of godliness shone forth on the minds of Peter's hearers that they were not satisfied with the once hearing or with the unwritten teaching of the divine proclamation, but with all manner of entreaties importuned Mark to whom the gospel was ascribed, he being the companion of Peter, that he would leave in writing a record of the teaching which had been delivered to them verbally. So we see that according to Clement of Alexandria, after the death of Peter, Mark was asked by the men of Rome to write Peter's gospel down. On learning what had been done through the revelation of the Spirit, it is said that the apostle was delighted with the enthusiasm of the men and sanctioned the composition for reading in the assemblies. Again, from the fragments of Clement of Alexandria, fragment four, preserved in Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History, Book 6, Chapter 14. And I quote, Again, in the same books, Clement has set down a tradition which he had received from the elders before him in regard to the order of the Gospels to the following effect. He says that the Gospels containing the genealogies were written first. That would be Matthew and Luke. And that the Gospel according to Mark was composed in the following circumstances. Peter, having preached the word publicly at Rome and by the Spirit proclaimed the Gospel, those who were present, who were numerous, and treated Mark inasmuch as he had attended him, meaning Peter, from an early period, and remembered what had been said to write down what had been spoken. On his composing the gospel, he handed it to those who had made the request to him, which coming to Peter's knowledge, he neither hindered nor encouraged. So there, Clement of Alexandria says that perhaps Peter's not dead, right? But, but um, Mark still later... Mark still later pens the gospel. In the first fragment of Clement, perhaps the Simon is another man. In the fragments of Clement of Alexandria, and I've read them before, but it's been a long time, we do have a rivalry spelled out between Simon Magus and Simon Peter in early Rome. Now, now, whether this is simply a mythological tradition or it's actually true, because all of the accounts are a hundred years after the fact. However, if in this first fragment of Clement that I had read from Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History 2.15, where it says, so then through the visit of the divine word to them, the power of Simon was extinguished, and immediately was destroyed along with the man himself, and such a ray of godliness shone forth on the minds of Peter's hearers, 
that they were not satisfied. Perhaps that's talking about Simon Magus and not Simon Peter, where it says that the man himself was destroyed. That, that might mean that the end of that rivalry with the demise of Simon Magus, we, you know, we don't really know, I don't think, it could be told historically. So perhaps Clement is telling us that this is Simon Magus. And, and that's, I've seen it debated both ways in, in several papers. And, and can't make a decision myself because, of course, we don't really have enough information. Yet, as we've seen from Irenaeus, from Papias, as he was recorded by Eusebius, and from Clement of Alexandria, as he was recorded by Eusebius, and there are other writings that support this, the writings of Marcion and the writings of Tertullian both also agree that Peter, that, that Mark's gospel is the testimony of Peter recorded by Mark, that it was esteemed in the earliest times that Mark had written the gospel of Peter, which he received from his companion. As we see that Mark is mentioned by Peter in his epistle at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. It is also interesting to note what Clement indirectly relates here, that the gospel was not pushed onto men by the apostles, but that the men themselves desired the written record from the apostles. And that's the attitude that's expressed in the writings of Clement as they were preserved in Eusebius. The King James Version reads at 1 Peter 5.13, The church that is at Babylon elected together with you, salutes you, and so does Marcus, my son. At Colossians 4.10, we find that this Marcus, or Mark, was the nephew of Barnabas, where Paul says, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas. In other words, Marcus, Barnabas's nephew. This Mark may well be, and I believe that he was, that John, whose surname was Mark, as we see described in Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 15. All of these people, Mark, Peter, Barnabas, and Paul, are mentioned as being together in the home of Mark's mother in Acts chapter 15. In, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 12, which relates the account of Peter's escape from the prison and from Herod. The Gospel of Mark, linguistically, contains many Hebraisms. A Hebraism is a, um, a feature that we would expect to see in Hebrew writing, but we see it in Greek. We would call that a Hebraism. As in Hebrew, in Mark also, verbs are often found at the beginning of sentences. But there are many more subtle Hebraisms. For instance, Hebrew and Aramaic naturally use redundant pronouns because the Hebrew relative pronoun, like who or what, is indeclinable and without gender, male or female. It therefore requires a personal pronoun in the clause which follows. Let me say that English pronouns are usually without gender also, right? I mean, we have him and her, of course, and he and she, but if I say who, it's not indicated if I mean who in the feminine or who in the 
masculine, so many English pronouns have no gender, where Greek pronouns and, and Latin and, and the Romance language, those pronouns have gender. In other words, if I say who and mean which woman, it would be a feminine form of the word who rather than an ambiguous form as we see in English. Because the Hebrew relative pronoun is indeclinable and without gender, it therefore requires a personal pronoun in the clause which follows, so it has to be accompanied with the personal pronoun. So for one example, we find in Mark 7.25 that it says, but immediately a woman hearing about him of whom her daughter had an unclean spirit, having come, fell to his feet. And we see there that the personal pronoun her is actually unnecessary in Greek, and it would be unnecessary in English. If a Greek writer had made the statement, meaning a, a person who knew Greek natively, then the word her would not have been written where it says, of whom her daughter and, and the Greek words there are more literally whose daughter of her. And, and it's definitely redundant, right? But it's a Hebraism. It's a feature of the Hebrew language that in Hebrew words we would expect to see. Rather, in Greek it would simply say, or in English it would simply say, whose daughter had an unclean spirit. The gender of the relative pronoun would be evident in the Greek form of the word. The CNT, the Christogenian New Testament, reads the way it does so that every Greek word is represented in translation. So it says, of whom her daughter. These Hebraisms occur very often in Mark. And they tell us that the writer certainly may have had Hebrew for a first language, but that he was writing in Greek. He was absolutely writing in Greek. These Hebraisms also prove that the original language of the Gospel of Mark was Greek, among other proofs. Many other Hebraisms exist in Mark, such as the redundant use of prepositions, the redundant use of words which are translated saying, Adjectival substitutes, or the use of parallelisms, which are found throughout Semitic poetry, among other things. However, none of these facets of Mark's language should indicate to us that Mark was a Hebrew struggling to write in Greek. He certainly was not. It can be, and it has been in certain academic circles, established that Mark's use of Greek actually represents or is representative of a Semitic use of the language which is found in a wide collection of literature from the Near East in the Hellenistic and Roman periods, most of it being Hebrew apocryphal literature known to have been written both before and long after the time of Christ. Mark's use of Greek, therefore, seems to represent a dialect of Koine Greek, which was common in the East at this time, and it began its development with the Septuagint, but did not end there. The Gospel of Mark was written in a simple, non-literary style, while its author 
was certainly a, a native Hebrew or perhaps Aramaic speaker. He was certainly not formally school, schooled in Greek, at least not in the higher schools of Hellenistic literature, as perhaps Luke certainly was, as Luke evidently was. This is consistent with the simple background and lifestyle of most of the apostles. There are many translations of Aramaic words in Mark, which helps to demonstrate that it was indeed written in Greek. There are several explanations of Hebrew customs in Mark, which means that the intended primary author audience was not Hebrew. These explanations of Hebrew custom are found in Mark's chapter 7, 14, 15, and twice in Mark chapter 15. There is also a description of the location of the Mount of Olives, which shows that the intended primary readers of Mark's Gospel are not expected to know its, its location in relationship to the temple and the city. So, so it's very clear throughout Mark that it was originally written in Greek. There are many Hebraisms in it, features of Hebrew language, so we know that the writer was a Hebrew. And that the audience was not expected to understand either the, um, the culture in Jerusalem or the geography of the city. There are also many Latin words in Mark, which are Latin words written in the Greek letters. A short list of Latin words which appear in more than one gospel, some of these appear in Matthew, Luke, or in both, are modius, legion, denarius, census, and fragilare, or fragilon, which is a whip. Census is a tribute tax. Denarius is a coin. Legion is a company of soldiers, the famous Roman legions, right? And a modius is a unit of measure liquid measure. Latin words which are peculiar to Mark, and where Matthew and Luke used Greek equivalents instead, are centurion, the, the, um, the Greek equivalent would be a hecaton case, a leader of a hundred, a speculator, which is actually a guard in Latin, and a sectarius, which is actually a unit of liquid measure, which is close to a pint. So, so these words where we see centurion in the gospel in Mark, which is a Latin word at the time, right? In, in Matthew and in Luke, we see hecatonates, which is, which is a, um, a, the Greek word that's the equivalent in meaning. On two occasions, the gospel of Mark supplies Latin translations of Greek words. These are found at Mark 12.42, which, where we see lepta duo, to lepta, we see codrantes, in, which is a Latin word, and they both mean a small coin. And in Mark fifteen sixteen, where we see the word alles, or court, is translated praetorium. But praetorium is actually a pretty popular Latin word. Mark also used Latin idioms writing in Greek. And there are several examples of this. In Mark 2.23, we see hodon koyon, which is to make one's way. That's a Latin idiom. It's common in Latin writing. Symbolion edudun is to take counsel or, or to give counsel. That occurs frequently in Mark. And, and um, several other 
Latin idioms that they are um, sayings in, in the Latin language that are very common and not so common in Greek or in Hebrew. One um, identified Latin idiom is tecentes tagonata, and that's equivalent to the Latin genua ponentes, bending the knees, and, and that's actually setting the knees in Greek. But some of these Latin idioms, and especially that one describing kneeling, are also common in other Greek writings and in other New Testament books. The Latin words which we see that Mark used were common terms in the military, the government, or they were units of measure of money. And some Bible commentators have taken this use of Latin words, along with some other circumstances in Mark, to demonstrate that Mark's intended readership were Romans. I would not jump to this conclusion. Rather, Rome, having long, long had the political hegemony throughout the Near East, such terms concerning military or government or units of measure must have been popular, and Mark may have simply have wanted to clarify words he didn't think were as well known in Greek as the equivalent Latin terms were. He may also have known Latin as well as Greek. We really can't tell any of these things. So why he used these Latin terms should not be, well, we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that he had a Latin audience. If Mark used these Latin terms simply because Latin readers were the intended audience, he may not have written in Greek at all in the first place. So while many commentators try to make an effective argument in that area, I don't think that it stands up. But the evidence for the early Christian writers does indicate that Mark's gospel was written in Rome, where Peter is also said to have died. Oddly, and, and this is where I challenge the stories of, concerning Peter's presence in Rome, because they're very convenient to a Catholic church. Oddly, Eusebius, in his ecclesiastical history, at 2.15, chapter 2, verse, I'm, I'm sorry, book 2, chapter 15, surmised that Peter meant Rome by his identification of Babylon in 1 Peter 5.13. There's actually one very late manuscript which tries to, re, which tried to replace Babylon with Rome. And, and that's listed in the NA 27. I have objections to this. Firstly, Peter's mission in Acts was explicitly stated as being to the circumcision. And there were great numbers of the circumcision in Babylon at this time, in the real Babylon, in Babylonia, which was at this time the empire under the control of the empire of the Parthians. The Parthians, in the history of Josephus, had always been friendly to the Judeans and sometimes allies against Rome. The descendants of some of the Judahites who never returned to Palestine had lived in Babylon for all of these years. A great number of them anyway. And a great number of them never left Mesopotamia. So Peter may well have been in the real Babylon when one Peter was written. In the ensuing centuries, the original Babylon actually did serve as the foremost and polluted fount of Talmudic Judaism. 
There's no doubt about that. Secondly, Catholics eagerly accept the identification of Rome with Babylon in 1 Peter 5.13. But at the same time, those same Catholics steadfastly reject the idea that Rome could be identified with mystery Babylon in Revelation. They cannot have it both ways. Eusebius later, in his Ecclesiastical History, Book 2, Chapter 16, places Mark, the same Mark of 1 Peter 5.13 and of Mark's Gospel, in Alexandria, stating that he was the first to bring Christianity there, but he does not give a specific time as to when that may have happened. According to Papias, quoted above, Mark was not overly concerned with the chronological accuracy of the accounts included in the Gospel, which may account for some of the discrepancies in the order of these events when they are compared to the other Gospels. It, they may also be seen by scoffers as an excuse for some of the discrepancies with the other Gospels. Here I will quote Papias's words once more. Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ. For neither, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. While Mark opens with an account of John the Baptist, his gospel from the middle of the first chapter to the end of the ninth chapter seems to contain only collections of narratives from Yahshua's ministering in Galilee. From chapter 10 through the 13th chapter, we see Yahshua in Judea and in Jerusalem, and the final chapters contain the accounts concerning the Passion and the Resurrection. So basically, Mark's Gospel is broken up into four pieces, the first part of chapter 1 being the account of John the Baptist. All of this, along with some of the other elements of Mark's style, which I will comment on as we progress through the actual text over the ensuing weeks, certainly agrees with the testimony of the early Christian writers that Mark, at the beckoning of others, simply recorded for posterity what was previously being related orally by Peter. So Mark's gospel was not meant to be an exacting biography of the life and ministry of Christ. And it was not written according to an exacting plan, as we find with the Gospel of Luke. It is also evident that Mark's Gospel may have been written after both Matthew and Luke. But that the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, had not yet reached Mark's intended audience in their complete written forms. In any event, the honest observer would find that the content of Mark's gospel agrees with what the earliest commentators, especially Papias, said about it, how, where, and why it was written. That it was simply a collection of the things that Christ said and did for the most part, in no particular order, only in a general order. Finally, I will not discuss all of the differences among the ancient 
various ancient Greek manuscripts and mark here. I would need a pretty large book for that. Rather, I will state that according to my own casual observation, being a translator of the New Testament but not having counted the differences in the text, right? I think that there are more differences among the manuscripts in Mark than there are for any other book in the New Testament. While most of these differences are incidental, some are important, and hopefully I will be able to notice those as this series progresses. Of course, the most important one is that Mark has no proper ending, as we would expect to see, because the last legitimate verse in Mark is found in 16.8. From 16.9 forward, we find several spurious endings, not just one. I believe that there's three, and, and most Bibles with notes, with notes, most study Bibles have um, recorded at least two of those. The NA-27 records two of those. I remember seeing a Catholic Bible that recorded three endings for Mark, and, and all of them are spurious. Okay, with all of that background, I will get into the Gospel of Mark from verse 1. The beginning of the good message of Yahshua Christ, son of Yahweh. Just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before you, your face, who shall prepare your way. A voice crying out in the wilderness, Make ready the way of God, make straight his path. Or make ready the way of Yahweh, make straight his path. Where it says the beginning of the good message of Yahshua Christ, we may think of the Greek word arche to mean the foundation or the source. Likewise, when Strabo explained his use of the works of the ancient poet Homer, Strabo considered Homer the beginning, ex arches, from the beginning, using the same Greek word. Strabo considered Homer the beginning of Greek knowledge concerning their world, and that of their neighbors. Mark's intent is to, profet, is to profess that what he was about to write is the reason for the oral accounts which were being spread throughout the Oikumene, throughout the Roman, the Greco-Roman world, in his time. As we saw in Matthew 27.9, when we covered that a few weeks ago, that while Matthew alluded to Jeremiah and quoted Zechariah explicitly, he only explicitly named Jeremiah. Here, in these first three verses, Mark directly quotes both Malachi and Isaiah, and Malachi more fully, but he only names the more prolific of the two prophets, which is, of course, Isaiah. Mark quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That language is very important to understand when this is applied to Christ. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. That's Yahweh speaking. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. 
the language here in these prophecies, which refers to Yahweh God explicitly in a role which we see fulfilled by the person of Yahshua Christ, is once again substantial proof that Christ is God himself come in the form of a man. Even as Matthew says at the beginning of his gospel, that they shall call his name Emmanuel, that's a Hebrew way of saying, they shall say of him that God is with us. The word of our God is indeed efficacious. If it's not found to be efficacious, then we should throw our Bibles in the trash and surrender our race to the Jews, to Satan. We may as well. Mark 1, verse 4. John the Baptist was in the desert proclaiming an immersion or a baptism of repentance for a remission of errors or sins. And all the land of Judea and all those in Jerusalem went out to him. And they were immersed by him in the river Jordan, baptized, acknowledging their errors. And John was clothed in camel's hair and a belt of skin around his loins, eating locusts and wild honey. The honey doesn't sound bad. As we in the prophecy of, as, as we see in the prophecy of Malachi, it was foretold of John the Baptist that he would cleanse the sons of Levi. Here again I will read Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. That's John preceding Christ. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, which is Christ, with the new covenant promised in the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a full of soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. These words refer to John, and we see him fulfilling that role here. They also can return, refer to Christ. Verse 4. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be present unto Yahweh as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you in judgment. Now Christ is the subject. And I, that's Yahweh speaking, will come near to you in judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless. And to turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith Yahweh of hosts. Christ did exactly these things, as we see in Matthew chapter 23, in John chapter 8, and in many other places in the New Testament. There are passages in Scripture that do not explicitly tell that John would be dressed in the manner in which he is dressed, in camel's hair and a strap of leather girding his loins, and living in this austere lifestyle. 
But yet there are passages, there are passages of scripture which do indicate to us that this was the manner of the Hebrew prophets. For instance, the prophet Elijah was described as being girt with a girdle of leather about his loins at 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8. In Zechariah 13 verse 4, we have another indication where it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed, every one, of his vision when he is prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. So we see that the prophets must have worn rough garments. And if they were false prophets, they wore them so that they could deceive people. And we see that the prophets wore straps of leather to gird their loins. And that's how we see John the Baptist here, dressed here. Locusts and grasshoppers. While many of us would not consider them appetizing, I sure as hell wouldn't, they were in the law considered to be clean, and therefore they could be used as food, as it is described in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 21 through 23, and I quote, Yet these you may eat of every flying, creeping thing that goes upon all fours, which have legs above their feet, to leap withal upon the earth. Even these of them you may eat, the locust after his kind, and the bald locust, whatever that distinction is, after his kind. I surely, surely wouldn't want to eat a hairy locust. And the beetle after his kind, and the grasshopper after his kind. But all other flying, creeping things, which have four feet, shall be an abomination unto you. Mark chapter 1, verse 7. I'm not going to say anything more about locusts. And he proclaimed, saying, He who is more powerful than me comes after me, of whom I am not worthy to bend, bending over to loosen the straps of his sandals. I have immersed you in water, but he shall immerse you in the Holy Spirit. We see a very similar statement in Matthew 3.11 and also in Luke 3.16. And Luke 3.16 adds that he shall baptize you or immerse you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. In the Gospel of John, at John 1.26 and 1.33, we see not different testimony, but additional testimony, as we should consider it, because John clearly goes into more detail on these things, where it reads, John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you know not. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said to me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost in the King James. It must be noted that if the book of Acts states in chapter 1, verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And if Peter states in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, 
For, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach. I'm sorry, if Paul states at 1 Corinthians 1.17, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And that Paul states again at Ephesians 5.26 of the assembly that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. How do Christians still cling to the baptism of John? Paul tells us that there is one baptism at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. At Romans chapter 6, verse 3, the same Paul asks, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, which is the one baptism. This is the baptism which Christ proclaimed. That of the Holy Spirit, where he says in Luke 12, verse 50, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? This is what Christ also referred to with Matthew chapter 20, verse 23. And these things were said long after his baptism with water, three years after. When Christians are baptized in the Holy Spirit, the one baptism which Paul tells us, that we have, they are immersed in the knowledge that Christ died only to forgive the sons, the sins of the children of Israel, that the children of Israel may live forever, that our race being forgiven may live forever, come out from among them. If you seek your salvation in water baptism, you seek your cleansing and your justification in the world, and you deny the cleansing power of Christ, seeking the justification which is in rituals at the hands of men. Mark 1, verse 9. And it happened in those days that Yahshua had come from Nazareth of Galilee and was immersed in the Jordan by John. Yahshua Christ was the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist was said to have, to have exclaimed in the Gospel of John, at John 1.29 and at John 1.36. The cleansing of the priests and the cleansing of the Lamb, and the Lamb is the sacrifice, the cleansing of these were commanded in the law. The following is from my recent commentary on Matthew chapter 3. This is from about six months ago. And I quote, In the Old Testament, washing of the body is seen of the priests before they enter into the temple to do service and to make sacrifice. From Leviticus chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, and I quote, And Moses did as Yahweh commanded him, and the assembly was gathered together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses said, unto the congregation, this is the thing which the Lord, or which Yahweh, commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And I'll quote from Numbers chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. And the Levites were purified, and they washed their clothes, and Aaron offered them as an offering before Yahweh. And Aaron made an atonement for them to cleanse them. 
And after that went the Levites into the, to do their service in the tabernacle of the congregation before Aaron and before his sons, as Yahweh had commanded Moses concerning the Levites. So did they unto them. All of Numbers chapter 8 describes the cleansing of the Levites. Aside from these passages concerning priests, or certain occasions where people are instructed in what to do upon exposure to diseases or corpses, or certain occasion, other circumstances, there is no other ritual cleansing of the ritual cleansing of the body required. Remember the words of Yahweh in Malachi chapter three, talking about John the Baptist, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. John the Baptist was also a Levite, so he could fulfill the priestly role of cleansing which Moses the Levite had done first, long before him. It is apparent that Yahshua coming to be the final ritual sacrifice for the children of Israel, the prophecy and baptism of John for the sons of Levi was also symbolic of the Old Testament law and its fulfillment. That is why John was sent to baptize the sons of Levi, so that Christ could be properly sacrificed. Now Israel has been cleansed by all of their sins by Christ himself, as foretold by the prophets and they have no need of any further cleansing. Water baptism is a dead ritual. The sacrifice was washed clean beforehand, as well as the priest. See Leviticus chapter 1, where it says at verse 9, But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and repeats at verse 13, But he, meaning the priest, shall wash the inwards and the legs with water, talking about the sacrifice. So the baptism of Christ by John is a symbolic fulfillment of the law concerning the cleansing of the sacrifice by the priest. That's the reason for John's baptism. Water baptism becomes unnecessary after the passion of the Christ. It was only symbolic with John the Baptist. We have one baptism, according to Paul, and that's that baptism in the death of Christ. That's the understanding of the salvation of our race, the covenants that our race has with God. And immediately upon ascending out of the water, he saw the heavens dividing and the spirit as a dove descending to him. Mark 1, verse 11 and the voice came from out of the heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am satisfied. This is in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, and I will read it. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Christ, being both God and man, is the root and the branch of Jesse. Or, as Revelation 22.16 puts it, he is the root and the offspring of David. So Christ challenges the Pharisees at Matthew 22.45, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Isaiah 11.2 And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh. 
and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Once we as a people understand the words of Christ, we shall indeed see that those words can slay the wicked. Once they're put into practice on the earth. We see that therefore this event following his baptism by John is the literal fulfillment of Isaiah 11.2. The spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. It is also a fulfillment of Isaiah 42.1 which states, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the nations. The vision of the spirit descending from heaven is an indication to us of the fulfillment of these things. The spirit descending upon Yahshua is also representative of its dwelling place in the true temple of God, the body of Christ. Just as it departed from that first temple many centuries before, which is described in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, where it says in part, Then the glory of Yahweh departed from off the threshold of the house. And stood over the cherubims. And the glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city. Mark 1 verse 12. And immediately... The Spirit drove him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days, being tried by the adversary, and he was with the beasts. Yet the messengers served him, or the angels. The full account of this event is recorded in both Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. I won't get into it here. Here we have seen a very brief account of those first days of the ministries of Yahshua Christ and of John the Baptist. This is quite consistent with the accounts of the origins of Mark's gospel found in the early Christian writers. That Mark was not a witness to any of these things, but only recorded that which he himself had heard from Peter. Since it is further evident from the gospel of John that Peter himself was not a witness to these events, Mark evidently had only made a summary of the things which he remembered being told, and it accounts for the brevity of what is recorded here. While we are not told where Matthew got all of his detailed information from, it is corroborated by Luke, who explicitly tells us that he collected it from eyewitnesses. Luke fully corroborates Matthew, and both of those accounts have a general corroboration here in Mark. None of them are copies of one another, since there is original language and somewhat different perspectives found in each of them, among other proofs and later corroborating testimonies. Mark 1, verse 14. And after the handing over of John, Yahshua had gone into Galilee, proclaiming the good message of Yahweh, and saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of Yahweh has neared. Repent and have faith in the good message, or the gospel. 
It was not too soon after Christ that was baptized that John was imprisoned. So this account, when taken by itself, or even that in Matthew, are somewhat misleading. We see in Matthew 4.12, And having heard that John had been handed over, he withdrew into Galilee. John's imprisonment is also mentioned in Luke chapter 3, verse 20. But in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, we learn that Christ had already been in Galilee, had gathered his original disciples, and had returned to Judea, which must have taken some time, right? All before John, was, John the Baptist was arrested. It is not that the Gospel of John conflicts with these other accounts. It is only that these other accounts, what we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have simply not included all of these details which John did, and that alone may fully account for the differences. Since they exist, I am compelled to explain them. The proclamation of Christ recorded here is probably only a summary representing his message to the people. The phrase kingdom of God only occurs this one time in Mark, but twice in John, five times in Matthew, and quite often in Luke. The phrase kingdom of heaven occurs 31 times in Matthew, but nowhere else in the New Testament. Therefore, these phrases should surely be seen synonymously. Some of the gospel writers preferring to write kingdom of heaven some of the gospel writers preferring to write kingdom of God. Some of them on occasion writing both. Well, Matthew at least. Mark 1, verse 16. And passing by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andreas, the brother of Simon, casting around nets in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Yahshua said to them, Come after me, and I shall make you to be fishers of men. And immediately, leaving the nets behind, they followed him. And he, going on a little, he saw Jacob, Jacob the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, and those in the vessel repairing their nets. And right away he called them. And leaving Zebedee their father in the vessel with the hired hands, they departed after him. This account parallels the account from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. But clearly, this account has been related to Mark from a different perspective than that which John provides, talking about Christ's recruiting of the apostles. The phrase, fishers of men, is certainly a reference to the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 16, 16, and I quote, Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith Yahweh, and they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. While the mainstream churches still think that it is time to fish, that era is long over. Having run out of good fishing holes long ago, 
the mainstream churches cast wider and wider nets, and they pull up all sorts of bad fish, which is the meaning of the parable of the net in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. I don't have that here, but I'll paraphrase it. The kingdom of heaven is like a net when cast into the sea, pulls up fish of every race. And the bad race are thrown aside and cast into the everlasting fire. But the good race are stored in vessels and preserved for eternity. Now the fishing period is long over, and it's time to hunt. We're in the period of the hunters. That is what Christian identity does today. We hunt for the descenders, the descendants of those lost tribes of Israel, who are the sole beneficiaries of the covenants. The time for fishing is long past. Mark 1, verse 21. And they go into Capernaum. Let me say that it's um, presumed, it, it's been speculated, and, and I, I, sort of, I sort of lean towards it myself, that Capernaum may have been named for Nahum. It, it may mean city or village of Nahum. I haven't investigated it, but I've heard the speculation, and I've, heard, and I've seen it mentioned in papers and commentaries. And they go into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, entering into the assembly hall, he taught. And they were astonished by his teaching, for he was teaching them as his having authority, and not as the scribes. In Malachi, Yahweh tells us that his covenant is with Levi, and that all the sacrifices of the spurious priests are therefore rejected. The scribes whose teachings were worldly and legalistic, and who had long lost sight of the truth, were unsure of many of the meanings of the scriptures. They had no authority in their teaching. They were constantly waffling and debating with one another. Their spirits were not inspired by God, because they accepted men of the other surrounding and mixed races into their number. They could have nothing but confusion. The brain and the spirit which produces our thought is also the product of our genes, just like any other physical trait, 1 Corinthians 15.44. The Talmud is the result of all this division and conflict which we see in first century Judea. And therefore, in the pages of the Talmud, Satan, the author of rebellion and confusion, wins the debate every time. Thankfully, all its pages are lies. In contrast, Christ was quite sure of himself and knew exactly what the scriptures said and what they meant, and the people were awed by that. Mark 1, verse 23. And there was right away in their assembly hall a man with an unclean spirit, and he had cried out, saying, what is there with us and with you, Yahshua the Nazarene? That's an idiom. What do you have to do with me? Have you come to destroy us? I know whom you are, the Holy One of Yahweh. 
And Yahshua admonished him, saying, Be silent and come out from him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a great voice came out from him. And they were all amazed, so as for them to dispute, saying, What is this? A new doctrine with authority? The reading follows the Codex of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. I noted the King James has it differently. And he commands the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And the report of it went out at once everywhere in the whole surrounding region of Galilee. The idea of unclean spirits is not really explained in depth anywhere in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament scriptures which we maintain in our Bibles. Perhaps that is because we are told not to regard at all the dis- disembodied spirits or those who connect to them, or those who claim to connect to them. In Leviticus 19.31, we read this, Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards, to be defiled by them. I am Yahweh your God. Likewise, in Isaiah 8, verse 19, we see this, And when they shall say to you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that keep. I always thought that was a pretty funny line. And that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God, for the living to the dead? But there is apocryphal Hebrew literature, omitted from the scripture by men 1,700 years or longer ago, which does speak of unclean spirits and their origins. Here, I am going to quote a part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are representative of the Enoch literature, relating to the events of Genesis chapter 6. The scroll fragment, known as 4Q202, or alternatively, as 4Q Enoch B, Aramaic, column 2 is a text which represents, well, I'm sorry, is a text which corresponds to what we know from Charles's or, or the other popular versions of Enoch as 1 Enoch chapters 5 and 6. This is from the Dead Sea Scrolls study edition by Martinez and Tinkalar, and I quote, all the days of their life, it happened when in those days the sons of men increased, pretty and attractive daughters were born to them. The watchers, the sons of the sky, which represents the fallen angels, the race which rebelled from God, saw them and lusted for them, and said to each other, let's go out and choose women from among the daughters of men and sire for ourselves sons. There are reconstructions in this translation but they are corroborated from other scrolls, such as 4Q201, 4Q204, and others of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The offspring which resulted from these unions in these scrolls are later called bastards. And I will quote 4Q204, speaking of the result of this episode, where it says, Exterminate all the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers, because they have caused evil to be done to men. 
Now, this is only one example. But it's very clear in the Enoch literature, in the Book of Giants, specific, well, well, there's one specific example, that the unclean spirits are the spirits of bastards. They're the spirits of those children of certain mixed marriages. And that's evident in much of the Enoch literature, but not in what has been preserved in the Bible. Mark 1, verse 29. And immediately coming out from the assembly hall, they went into the house of Simon and Andrew with Jacob and John. And the mother-in-law of Simon was laid down, being with fever, and right away they spoke to him about her. And having gone forth, grasping her hand, he raised her, and the fever left her, After and, and afterwards she served them. Here we see that Peter had a mother-in-law, and therefore he had a wife. And Paul corroborates that for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, where he states, Do we not, meaning himself and Barnabas, do we not have license to always have with us a kinswoman, a wife? So we see that a wife should also be a kinswoman. She should be somebody from your tribe. As also the other ambassadors and the brethren of the prince and Cephas. Cephas is the Hebrew form of the word Petrus or stone, which is the nickname which Christ assigned to Simon, who was therefore known to us as Peter. Peter had a wife. Mark 1, verse 32. And upon its becoming late, when the sun sank, and, and that's literally the word is sank, so we know how old that idiom is, they brought to him all those having maladies and those being possessed by demons. And the whole city was gathering together by the door. And he healed many being ill, with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. Yet he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him to be Christ. I know that demons are not in our modern collective experience. However, the Greeks, the Romans, the Akkadians, the ancient Germans, the ancient Celts, the ancient Hebrews, every branch of our race believed in demons or, or some form of spiritual creature that may be considered a demon. Yes, it sounds fantastic to modern man today, but it seems to have been a consistent part of the ancient world. And that's about all I'm going to comment, except to say that the demons... The, the Greeks saw the word demon as describing a spiritual being which was inferior to God. That's the basic Greek definition of demon. It can also mean a god. And, and certainly that's a New Testament teaching because Paul in Colossians and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Colossians chapter 2, and several other places, indicates to us that these fallen angels, these rebel spirits, well, well, they may have been in bodies at one time, and, and 
that their bastard children are still in bodies today. They're called Jews and Arabs. That they, those original creatures who rebelled from God, they were the source of the world's false religions. James 2.19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. The devils also believe, and they tremble. My translation says that the demons, he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. The King James Version leaves out the words to be the Christ, as do most other popular versions. They are based on primarily the Alexandrian text. My translation in this instance follows the Codex Vaticanus. The manuscripts are highly divided regarding this verse, but they all generally say the same thing. Isaiah chapter 57 verses 15 through 21 relates to this, to this passage. Mark 1, 32 through 34. And I will read it. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be wroth. For the spirit should fail before for the spirit should fail before me, and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of this covetousness. I was wroth and smote him. Yahweh, God is talking about Jacob in general. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off. And to him that is near, saith Yahweh, and I will heal him. The healing miracles which Christ performed during his ministry are only representative of the healing of our nation and our relationship with God through Christ. Verse 20, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up, mire, and dirt that describes the enemies of God. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And Paul quoted this verse where it says, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, meaning to him of Israel. Paul quoted this in relation to Christ. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked, we should never seek peace with the enemies of God, period. And we all know who they are. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And in the morning, having arisen very late at night, he went out and departed into a desert place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those with him pursued soon after him. And they found him and say to him that, they all seek you. And he says to them, we should go elsewhere into the neighboring towns in order that I shall proclaim there. For this reason have I come. 
And he went proclaiming in their assembly halls and casting out demons in the whole of Galilee. And there comes to him a leper, exhorting him, saying to him, that if you desire, you are able to cleanse me. And being deeply moved, extending his hand, he touched him, he touched him and says to him, I desire, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he had been cleansed. And admonishing him at once, he drove him away and says to him, City, you say nothing to me. I'm sorry. City, you say nothing to no one, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing that which Moses has commanded for a testimony to them. But going off, he began to proclaim many things and to spread the account, so that for him to no longer be able, for Christ, to no longer be able to enter openly into the city, because this man went and announced that he was a leper who had been cleansed everywhere. But he was outside in the desert places, and they came to him from everywhere. Leviticus chapter 13 contains the laws concerning leprosy. Lepers were to be expelled from the camp. Later, lepers were forced to live outside of towns or cities. They were not allowed inside of the city gates. That is why lepers were often described as begging at the gates of cities, since they most often had no legitimate way to obtain sustenance. Therefore, the plague of leprosy was a death sentence. The healing of leprosy by Christ was therefore represented spiritually of the healing of Israel by God, that he would cleanse all of their sins, even the very worst ones, from which death is certain under the law. Those are the promises found in the prophets, and those promises found in places such as Isaiah 45, chapter 20, they are without qualification. I hope that um, my introduction to the Gospel of Mark was thorough and clear, and my expounding of this first chapter. I will be back here with Mark chapter 2, and probably Mark chapter 3, next week, next Friday. I thank you all for listening. I will be here tomorrow, Christoginia Saturdays, with my, my blog that I wrote two years ago, and, and I have a few things to say, and that's why I want to cover this blog, The New Weimar Republic, and a Brief and Partial History of Modern Christendom. Thank you for listening, and good night. Praise Yahweh.